Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the iTalk Credit Radio Show with your host, Ira Royal. Using financial literacy to inspire, motivate, and empower people to set and achieve goals in all aspects of life. Join us every Thursday evening starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Cat Builder Network. To be a guest or for more information, go to italkcredit.com. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the I Talk Credit Radio Show. This is your host, Ira Royal. And once again, we thank you for joining us today. We thank you for supporting this movement. This thing we call financial literacy, where we strive to empower, to educate, to inspire people, to truly take control of their financial lifestyle. To not only think about a credit score as a means to make purchases, to not only think about money as a means to buy material objects, we really have a mentality of what can I do to impact, number one, my family on a positive note, generational wealth. What can I do to leverage any type of income coming in to further along myself from where I am now to where I want to be in the future? So this is all about behaviors. It's all about that mentality that you have. It's all about that commitment, that drive to want to do better. And as we say every week, this show isn't just not for people with, you know, credit issues. This show is for people who don't have any credit, who have a lot of credit, who just want more information about how they can use it to leverage a business, to maybe buy that first home, to expand their you know, their current business that's profiting. So this this kind of this credit literacy thing can really take shape and and, and branch out into a lot of different areas. And I like to approach it in a way that really having you identify areas in your life that you can use certain techniques to push you and challenge you to just do better, to, again, to take control. And I personally believe if you start off in the areas of finance, that can trickulate into other areas, right? If you start off really having a, a commitment to success, where your money is, you can take that to your health. You can take that to your relationships. You can take that to your spirituality. You can take that to all areas of your life. Because what we're promoting here is, one, being aware of things that you're doing. Two, have a plan. And three, we're looking long-term, right? We're not just looking at instant gratification today. What can we do to impact our life and our community in a positive way? So, again, we have a special show I'm excited. Um, we have a good friend of mine, Mr. Luis Negron. He is the CEO of the Negron Group. He's going to come on and tell us about his new business venture, what he's doing in the community, and just the thing that he, the things that he's going to do to really shape and mold this thing we call financial literacy. We're going to bring my brother, Mr. Mick Todd, on. He's going to come with the Real Talk 7 today. You know, one thing that he does so well, it just gives us really good information in the way that we can digest it, make it applicable to our everyday life, and then go out and just get it done. 
So we got a good show lined up today. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to get the ball started. Again, I really appreciate you joining the show, listening to us every week. We're getting phenomenal feedback. Really, really, really good feedback on what we can do better, how we're out here helping people. So I appreciate it. So we'll be right back. You're listening to I Talk Credit on the Cat Building Network.
choosing to invest in a good opportunity. So what if you could invest in the future of kids, like a stock? Not the kind of stock that's about making money, but a stock for social change called Better Futures. With your investment, it helps students like me go to college. My name is Charles, and I'm your dividend. Invest in Better Futures with UNCF. Visit uncf.org slash invest. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a wonderful thing to invest in. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the show. This is your host, Ira Royal. You're listening to the I Talk Credit Radio Show on the Cat Builder Network. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to bring to the show Mr. McGraw. He's going to come on the show, and he's going to give us some information about the McGraw Group. But first, let me give you a little bit of information about this gentleman. So he has over 10 years of just public service really focusing on outreach programs, education, and, and financial literacy. He served as a um, Senior Director of Education and, Commit- and Community Engagement for United Way of Greater Atlanta. He was the Market President of Operation Host for the Southeast. And now he's doing his own thing, the Negron Group. And so we're going to welcome him to the show right now. Mr. Negron, you there? I'm here. Awesome. How you doing, brother? Good afternoon, my brother. It's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Oh, no. Thank you for joining. I appreciate it. So, first and foremost, again, I just really appreciate you joining the show and being willing to do this. I know you have a busy day, and I know you have a lot of things going on. Um, So, first, congratulations on the new business venture. You know, I mean, when you told me about that, I'm really excited for you. I know you're going to do amazing things. You've always done amazing things. Just looking at your you know, background, how you've always been committed to financial literacy, education, and outreach programs here in Atlanta and abroad. Um, I have nothing but, you know, knowing that you're going to do amazing things. So I guess, first of all, just kind of, you know, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you even came into this thing of outreach and wanting to be involved in education and, and making sure the community was really you know, of your focus. Yes, thank you. Um, well, I'm originally from Oakland, California, and the community engagement was birthed in the city of Oakland when I turned about 16 years old. I was working with the, at that time what was known as the Omega Boys Club was formed, and I was doing volunteer work with them at that time that led me to work with the Children's Defense Fund at that time when Marion Wright Edelman was doing her um, Black Community Crusade for Children in the Black Student Leadership Network. And she had started what was known as the Freedom Schools in the community, um, in, in the different communities. Oakland was one of the communities that was being used at that time. And Urban Strategies Council at that time was led by Angela Glover Blackwell, who now runs um, Policy Network. And um, and I was just blessed to be one of the young young people to be in the mix. And at that time, I had gone to college. I was at Morehouse College, and I went back home to serve as the director of the Freedom Schools. We had trained at the Ella Baker Training Institute because we had just purchased the Alex Haley Farm in Clinton, Tennessee. We went through the Ella Baker Training Institute and instituted there and really learned about um, the civil rights movement, the, the Freedom School movement, and what was happening and how to do, basically at that time, how to transform communities using college students to go back and do what's known as community engagement as we know it today, but to put it into form in the early 90s. 
And that really was the birth that I had the conception of this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Um, from there, it took off. I just, um, was, you know, when I graduated Morehouse, I was able to get into higher ed and use that background of grant writing and skills and building communities and took it into higher ed where I worked in um, higher education at Morehouse and, and at Clark and as a Spanish professor, but then I got into administration and went on to work at Gainesville State College where I, I was one of the um, founders of the um, Office of Community Outreach and Development for Hispanic students. It really put to work my community development skills where I really looked to bring undocumented students and Hispanic students into the fold into higher education. And that really put me on the map because that's when I um, had the opportunity by Dr. Kaufman, who was then the president of Georgia Gwinnett College, was the new college started here in Gwinnett County, and, and, and that was back in uh, 2000, 2000, um, 2005 when um, I came on board as the, one of the first 20 staff people and the first brother on staff to be on there with them to form that we were unaccredited and, and getting it going and not saying, um, you know, starting a college from scratch. What, what a better way to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, and how to do the community engagement and, and fund development all from scratch. And that, to me, was a really fun time. I built the college from 166 students with the, um, with the help of the staff. I hired the admissions people, the community engagement, the minority outreach programs, the Title III funding, and really built it up to when I left. I was at 8,500 students. And at that time, I was blessed to work with um, – oh, go ahead. No, I just say, oh, wow, that's absolutely amazing. Go ahead. <laughs> and then I said, you know, and then at that time I was blessed to really go back and work with an old mentor of mine, um, Kwaku Forstar, and Kwaku now runs the Annie Casey Foundation in Mechanicsville, and Brother Forstar allowed me the opportunity to work with him and bring um, Year Up Atlanta, which is the the nonprofit started by Gerald Shatavian that that concentrates on six month IT training for youth, uh, disengaged youth, and um, and then six months um, education training that would get them into uh, um, a job for wages. And, uh, man, that was transformative because I was able to bring all what I learned from the nonprofit, the higher ed, and the education background, and I put that to work in Atlanta, and that was transformative for a lot of the Metro Atlanta youth that changed their lives to become go from basically dead-end jobs, not having a degree, or dropping out of school to, to, to learning new skills, IT skills, um, workable skills, transferable skills to change their lives and their families' lives to be transformative, to be competitive in a market. And not, you know, and as we know today, most, most students and most people, you don't need a degree. You just need a skill and a set that could get you to that point. So that, to me, was really great. And then that's when I would say Brother Milton Little from the United Way came my way. An opportunity came my way at the United Way where I um, was hired on board to build out the um, – middle school, high school, and post-secondary opportunity portfolio, which concentrated on the basically the pathway for youth, uh, for community engagement and, and education. And that really was what the 13-county region kind of put me on the map because at that point in time, I was getting over, you know, basically over 400 development to creation and really use the creative genius of everything that I learned. Um, and I was able to then, uh, what really put me on the map there was that I was able to become and get the Aspen Institute um, Opportunity Youth Fund, which concentrated, again, on dislocated youth and creating pathways for them into education and creative um, workways, again, using the background that I had with that innovation and entrepreneurship ways, and that included, again, the financial aspects of financial literacy and community development transformation ways and, you know, thinking out the box. 
Um, and, and then I would say, you know, three years later, that's when I had the blessing to meet uh, John O'Brien and, and uh, we had a wonderful discussion and went over to be able to work with him over Operation Hope for the last two and a half years. And um, then after that, you know, just decided to, to, it was time for me to bless the community and, and go out and on my own, me and my wife decided to open the Negron Group because we wanted to develop other people's gifts and passions to be transformative. And that's what brings us here full circle, my brother. Awesome. Wow. I mean, <laughs> your resume speaks for itself. And in every area that you've worked in, it's really been committed to community engagement and, and building that community up. So I guess one of my questions is, is why? I mean, you know, you could have done anything with your life, right? I always believe if you're successful in one thing, you have something in you that kind of intrinsically allows you to be successful in any area of your life. You have that work ethic, um, you know, networking capabilities, able to build relationships. But why community service? What does it mean to you individually? I would say for me was when growing up in Oakland, California, I had great mentors. I had um, my father was a great man. Um, um, you know, just just people always in my life. Um, when I got to Morehouse College, um, I stayed in Benjamin E. Mays, Elijah Hall, and 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 of course learning Dr. King's philosophy. And and you know, for me, it was about giving back. Um, I had received a lot. You know, to 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 he who is given a lot, you have to give a lot. And for me, that was one of the biggest things for me is that you know I had been blessed in my life, and for me, it, it was it, you know I couldn't leave others behind. And I had to make sure and ensure that I had a legacy that was left that, that, you know, I at least had to try to change the trajectory of the community of those, you know, that, that, that may not have had the pathway and the blessings that I had. And then for me, that's important, especially that I have children. I want to ensure that I left this place in a better place for them to ensure that they had opportunities that, and other children had other opportunities to make a difference in the world. Yeah, and I love that you touched on legacy. And it's something that I wish that, you know, I wish that we talked a little bit more about this thing called legacy, especially to some of our youth, because it's so important that they understand that what they do now and today, our present, impacts not only right now but down the road. And if we can really have their mind wrapped around what am I, when I leave this place, what will my legacy be? What will people say I stood for? You know, not how many cars I drove or how many chains or all these material things, but the true nature of my being, my essence. You know, what did I impact while I was here? And for you, I see it's all wrapped around one word, in my opinion, it's service. And I always believe and I will always say if you take care of your community, your community will take care of you. And you mentioned something earlier. You said that, um, you know, it doesn't always take a degree. And I want you to kind of elaborate that on, on that a little bit for me because I definitely agree with you. You know, I have, I have multiple degrees. But one thing that I've learned is that we kind of separate ourselves a little bit sometimes, right? Just because you have multiple degrees or I don't care if you have a Ph.D. does not mean you're, you're better or any worse than anybody else. And really, I honestly believe that it's that experience, it's that hustle, it's that grind, it's that attitude that I'm going to get out, of here, I'm going to get out here and I'm going to get it no matter what that really breeds successful people, and it's not just a piece of paper. Although I'll never take it away for all my college grads that are listening to the show, not demeaning your, you know, your degree at all. But I believe you have to have a little bit more. What do you think about that? No, I, I agree. Um, and, and it's interesting. Now, I can say it like this. So when I started off in the work that I was doing, I was the one that did not have a degree. Um, I didn't get to Morehouse College until I was 21 years old. 
So I have worked for several years. I was the one that, that was, you know, working with people that were attending Yale and Harvard, these Ivy League schools and HBCUs and other colleges and universities. And yet I was there working with them, but I was the one without the degree. But the difference is that I, I actually had the practical grassroots um, training. I had the connections. I had the connections to the people on the ground. I knew where everybody was located. Um, you know, the, what, what I realized the difference for me at that time is I did not have some of the technical, ex, you know, training that they had in regards to being so the theories and things of that nature. Um, you know, and I think the era in which I grew up in, which was, you know, basically the early 90s, um, you know, the time was different. So you, you may have needed a degree at that time to be able to get into Southern Avenue, especially as a man of color. Um, I'm not dismissing that at all. But I will say as, as an Afro-Latino brother is that one thing that I see in today's world in the 21st century that, you know, if you get the right training, you get the right background and certifications behind you, especially with the, with the world of technology, especially with the world of financial literacy, um, you know, if you get the right, to, you know, your Series 7, 66, and so on and so forth, you know, you don't have to have the degree per se, but if you get the right training behind you and the right, and the right mentor with you, you know, brothers and sisters could be definitely successful with that. You know, and, and it's also a way that helps people say that they won't have the debt of student loans on them and things of that nature. So, you know, it's just also um, us teaching that legacy to our younger brothers and sisters to know these are the different pathways that you could take to be successful. I mean, for me, I'm blessed to have a, a daughter that's on a pathway in the arts. And um, for me, we're 100% behind her saying that she has the blessing to go into the arts uh, straight out of high school and be very successful, and then she could go back to college at a later time. So that's an example I'm using with, you know, my, with our own child as a way to, for her to be successful. You know? so, so like I said, sometimes in today's world, you have to be able to be creative to support brothers and sisters in a way that's going to make them successful, especially um, you know, when we look at the, the systematics of how education and things of that nature do lack um, in, in certain areas of our cities and country. So you know, access is limited. There's um, um, inequity in, in, in access to, to um, education. There's inequities in, 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 in not ability for access for, for um, you know, technology and things of that nature. So those are real issues we have to talk about and be straight up with. Um, you know, I, I'm from the Bay Area, so I was blessed at an early age to have one of the first Macs, first IBMs and things of that nature. But that was because I was in an area where Silicon Valley was booming. But, you know, when I got to Georgia, it was a whole different world. You know, I had higher technology when I got here in the early 90s than Morehouse had at the bottom of the, of the um, computer system there. So, so those are things that, that we have to look at so, and how we go about being systematic about it. But, again, not discounting degrees, but having to understand what's going to be the best pathway for the young children and young people that are up and coming. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, you know. And I'm glad you touched on the kind of systematic um, – Areas where, in regards to education, that minorities really have been affected, and we're still being affected. I mean, you talk to some of the school teachers these days, and you know, the one thing that they say is, we don't have the adequate resources to really teach these kids on a way where they can complete compete on a global scale, right? And for me, it's always I'm thinking like, if number one, if if the government, and, I, and I'll use financial literacy, but this can go into a lot more other things, but if the government does not see the importance of educating, um, you know, our youth, and I'm talking about K through 12, even as a college, on the importance of financial literacy and how it can impact their lives, I'm not just talking about credit, banking, 
short and long-term investments, you know, really making sure that they have a solid foundation of education in terms of that part, I feel like you're doing them a really a really big disservice when you're not educating them properly on things that they're going to face immediately after school or they're facing during um, So I definitely agree with you that a lot of these kids that are in school, you know, are not being educated properly, and when they come out, it's like they're already behind the eight ball. And I know that you have worked and are um, heading an organization right now where you're trying to really go in there and change that. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, different things that you see that, you know, not just your organization, but just anybody can do to help this, I want to say, war on education where we can make sure our youth are being educated properly. I would say one of the first things that we need to do is definitely um, be educated on our legislative and policies that are within. You can start at your local local level, your own school system, your own school board, understand the policies that are being instituted. And I would say also look at the fact that um, here, you know, here we live in the metro Atlanta area, so you have to look at both what's, what's known as your ur- urban school district and your rural school district because both are being stressed. And, 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 and you have to look at the encompassing of what's happening to the children on both ends of the spectrum. And the other part is also to look at how, how the education policy is being shaped from the federal level to the state level to the local level and how children are being pushed in regards to if your child is not going to be either an AP or honor courses, what's left? You know, is it going to be a general diploma? Is it going to be a technical diploma? And really what pathways are going to be then available for that, those children at that time? Um, you know, and, and, what, and, what, and what avenues are going to be open? What jobs are they going to be available to get and receive? Um, you know, what are the competencies that are they going to have? And then, you know, we also got to be realistic about it that, unfortunately, some parents that we are dealing with and some of the guardians that we're dealing with are also, you know, I would say have a certain educational aptitude that we also have to assist and work with also within their general. So for me, it's a holistic approach. So when I go into the community, you have to look at the whole community, the history community, and the spirit of the community so we'll be able to have a better assessment of how to deal with it. Um, you know, and I'm not, you know, you can't put the blame on the government. Sometimes the blame has to be on ourselves, also on ourselves, because sometimes the advocacy and the voice could have been misdirected or been misled, but also you have to know sometimes how to be able to advocate for yourself. And that's what I also have learned. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a point when I remember my sophomore year in Oakland Public Schools, they were cutting out everything in regards to music and arts and um, football almost got cut out. The sports almost got cut out. But, you know, um, we advocated for certain things as students in, in the protest part about that in the, in the PTA that we had a voice to save certain things. So sometimes it, it, it begins with a catalytic aspect of having an understanding of finding the person within the community that would be the voice and then finding the, the spirit within the community that would help lead it. And then that's where we will come in. You know, one thing that the Negron Group is committed to do, like I said, is to develop the gifts and the passions and the spirit of the community, of the community, of an organization, of an idea or an educational pathway. Um, I guess for me, I could say that, you know, me and my wife and our business partner, um, Rebecca Jean Batiste, we all have been blessed that we have 20 plus years of experience within all those realms of education and organizational development, community development. So we know and can see it. And, and, and the biggest thing is that, you know, we don't have to lead it. We can help build it from behind the scenes to help the people have an understanding that these are the components of how you make it happen. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's it's very much needed. I mean, you know, one thing 
when I see some of the schools, some of our urban schools, I agree with you. They lack leadership. Uh, I personally believe that we have a lot of um, we have a lot of parents that are kids themselves, right? And so, in my opinion, it's easier for you as an administration to come in and really just say anything you want to say to those, you know, parents or you know, if they're not involved and they just kind of, you know, lead you to the wayside, they're not challenging you to do anymore because, one, maybe you're young, and, two, they know that, hey, this person might be a single-family home, they're doing the best they can do. But I just know I remember growing up, right, and the administration was a lot more direct and a lot more forceful for people to be engaged in the schools, for parents to be engaged in the schools. And I'm not, I'm not an educator, right, so I'm not saying it's not, not even like that. I'm just speaking from my past. You know, parents, you know, teachers will call the parents, hey, you need to be at school on this day or, you know, this event's going on. We really need your help. We really need your support. And you really see a lot of parents come to the school and actively involved. And I wonder, have we lost that kind of in this, um, you know, have we lost that to where we have so many youth that are having kids and not working multiple jobs and they're trying to make it through that we're just leaving the school system to teach the kids and the parents aren't as involved. Um, and I know that's something that you could come in, your organization come in to help, but I guess what my question is to you is, how do you think that changed over these past generations, and what must we do to kind of change it back from, you know, the school is a, a glorified daycare to the school is actually a center to help educate? Well, very good analysis. I would say, first of all, you have to first start and claim your community number one. And then number two, once you claim your community and the community stakeholders, then you build it from there to claim your school, claim your streets, claim the political action powers within there. Um, you know, it starts with dignity. It starts with an understanding of pride. Um, it starts with building the spirit. Um, it starts with working in collaboration then in regards to the community, church, school, and, and the action. Um, you know, you, it's, it's really, you know, it's not a, it's, it's something that's not just going to happen overnight. This is something that we're talking about is systematic change. And sometimes you have to change the behaviors that have been ingrained generationally within the community. So, so this is something that is lifelong and things that take long time to change. Um, I can use the neighborhood I grew up, for example. Um, it's really ironic. My, um, um, the Oakland Scout area is now the hottest vehicle to live in. It's totally regentrified. Um, it's the techie area to live in. It's the foodie area to live in. But when I was growing up, um, it was definitely the crack-infested area. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to be seen going there. It was a heavily drug-infested area. Um, it was a very hard time to live there. But, you know, that was home. Um, so, so in a matter of, you say, 30-plus years, you see the transformation of what happened. But, you know, I would say what happened there in Oakland was the fact that it was the fact that um, prices got high for rent and everything in Frisco, which drove those techies and those and, 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 and people to be able to come over to Oakland for more affordable living. So that drove the prices in the area to be cleaned and different. You see what I mean? So, you know, you kind of see that happening in the metro Atlanta area. The areas of to live in walkable, livable communities. But at the same time, you also got to look at those that have been entrenched in living in those communities for generations, and, and, and you have to either look at the, the displacement of them or you have to look at how they will stay and be able to be integrated within the transformational aspects of those communities. So, again, you have to look at meeting the community where they're at, 
building up for dignity, putting the components together, finding the wins, and moving it forward. I like that you said that, and truly understanding that it's not an on and off switch, right? Like you said, it's going to take time. It's going to take patience. It's going to take collaboration from multiple different organizations. Um, and I love the way you said that it's not just a government problem. It's not. It's, and I said this on our last show, that we really have to move from a society to where we're looking for people to do something for us, right? The government, I, I personally believe we need to get back to a place where um, we take care of our own communities. Like, it's our job to make sure our kids are educated. It's our job to make sure our communities are safe. It's our job to make sure our communities are clean. You know, the government's there, and there's, they definitely have skin in the game, but we have to take pride in doing that. And you keep referencing the word dignity and pride, and I love that because we need that sense of dignity instilled back into our communities. Um, my dad grew up in, like, the 1930s, and one thing that he would always tell me is, you know, a, a, a child could not walk down the street and cut up, and somebody would not say something to them. And that's because you have people in the community who know, like, you're not going to act out in here because you represent us type of mentality, right? And I think we kind of lost that over the years, and, and I hope that we kind of go back to that whole notion of it takes a community to raise a child, you know? I, I do agree with you. No, thank you for that. No, I definitely appreciate it. I want to I wanna pose a question to you, right? It's not a wrong or right answer, but I've had a couple of debates about it before. What are your feelings about the state coming in and taking over schools? Um, and we, we've kind of seen a couple of bills, kind of, you know, try to come up about states coming in and taking over low-performing schools, um, taking it out of the hands of the community, and really governor or mayor kind of putting in place certain people. And I have mixed feelings about that, and I've talked to certain people about that, and they have one feeling and I have another. Because in my mind, I'm like, well, if the school isn't adequately educating our kids, then get them out of there. But then also, too, you know, from speaking to educators, they have the feeling like, well, it's not just on the teachers. Like, we're dealing with, you know, parents. We're dealing with the system who they care more about a test than truly educating these kids. You know, our kids come to school, and we have a lot of behavioral problems because they go home and they don't get to sleep. You know, they're just exposed to so many different things. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a very, how can I say, interesting question that you posed. Uh, as we know, the state of Georgia just passed, uh, or, you know, recently within the last year, the, the governor did pass that bill, and it was approved that the governor could go and take over a school system if, if need be. Um, I could give a prime example. I could talk about the Oakland Public Schools. The Oakland Public School um, System several years ago was actually taken over by the state of uh, state of California and had an appointed um, person to oversee it. The ironic thing is that um, they went in, they supposedly cleaned up the system, then they hired a superintendent. That superintendent then left, and then they went back down, and now the state is taking over it again a second time. Um, you know, I, I do feel there needs to be oversight over systems. That is correct, because you need checks and balances. Regardless, that's just a system. It's money. It's state and federal funding that are coming in. The other part is you have to look at the holistic aspect of, of, of the grassroots also. Is the community really being serviced the way it is? Um, you know, is it just all first-year teachers there? Is the first-year administrators, are they receiving the adequate, in, you know, information? Is the school really funded the way it should be? Are the right services there? You know, so you have to look at it from a di from different perspectives. And I would say, unfortunately, a lot of the, the school systems or the schools that are going to be taken over are not truly funded at the level they are and not, not truly managed at the, at, the, at the way they should be. 
you know, that's what I've seen in my experience. You know, I, I can't speak for all other ones, but that's what I've seen generally here. I would say in Georgia and in California and the places that I've been, that's what I've seen. But, but I can say to the credit of those that have done the turnaround and they have worked hard for system-wise because, you know, the unfortunate people that lose at the end are the children because the children are the ones that are being displaced. Teachers are being, you know, let go. You know, their educational system and journey is being disrupted in a way that is detrimental to them as well as to the, the community and the parents. So I do think that, you know, if, 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 if a state or a system is going to take over, they need to look at it from a holistic point of view with the children in mind and what's in the best interest for them and not, the, and not dollars at the end of, a, of, of just taking over a system. And, and, you know, it's a very sensitive and hot topic, but at the same time, that's why you had a, a slew of charter schools and private schools opening up all over the state and, and, and all over the country because of, 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 of that and also waivers for people to take their, their, their students out of these schools and put them in other different other schools, school choice. But at the same time, you know, unfortunately for parents and, and families that cannot leave, that leaves them in a position where, you know, they have to be there and stuck in that situation. So we have to find better ways to be able to support them and ensure that they have an educational pathway that's going to not be as disruptive for them. That's right, and that's where your organization comes in, correct? That is correct. Yes, sir. That's correct. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing in the Hispanic community um, in terms of financial literacy and community development, because um, I know you're very, very passionate about that because, you know, that's a, a part of your ethnicity. But talk to me a little bit about exactly what you're doing and, and what's your goal. Yeah, I tell you the truth, our goal right now is to really work with the Hispanic community to ensure that they have a better understanding of the way the way financial the financial systems work. Um, it's really interesting. So, so my, I'm first generation, but most most of Latinos that arrive in this country or come to this country, they work on a cash system. And, and I say my dad was one that, that he, to the day that he died was a cash system. And my dad didn't open up his first checking account until I was like in, um, in middle school. So for me, you know, he paid everything cash as well as other Latinos do. And, and one thing that we had to learn is that he didn't get like his first credit card and stuff well into my 20s. So it was, and it was because it was a distrust of the system and a distrust of, the, of not understanding how the financial aspects of things worked. And the way that he purchased his house, purchased it by paying cash. So, you know, so, so for me, it's a matter of reteaching and having an understanding for the Latino community to have an understanding that if you're going to be in, in America, this is how it works. But this is also how it's beneficial for you to work within the system, to use the tools here to advance yourself either for your, um, again, to either purchase a home, to be an entrepreneur, to um, advance your wealth. You know, so there's wonderful tools here that are different that are in the countries in which we come from. You know, you know, um, I come from Puerto Rico, and we know just what happened in Puerto Rico the last few years with the financial crisis there. And so you have to look at what's going to be happening with the financial model there. And you have to also look at the financial crisis that's happening in other parts of Latin American countries. But at the same time, there's an understanding that, you know, there's, there's opportunities within the Hispanic Latino communities here in the Americas that, that again, that you know, wealth, wealth um, administrators and, and opportunities. I know banks are really making a big push to do in-language, um, you know, bank accounts and, and, and financial services to the Latino community. So, so that's a growing market that's going to have a very large 
cache of funds available, especially by 2050 when most of the Latin, when most of America would be Spanish speaking anyway. So when you look at it from that perspective, they could be the, you know one of the most you know highest income as well as as the um, domestic product of it, on, you know having the, the money to spend. So you know so so financial institutions right now are gearing up for that. So you know my thing is how can I help the Hispanic community not be taken advantage of, but have them understand how to function within the systems that are here. And you raise a good point. And I'm going to speak on it from a banking perspective because that's what I know. When I left banking, and I was thinking I was around 2010, 2011, we had just really shifted to really being more aggressive with going into those Latino and Hispanic communities and opening up checking accounts, right? But from my perspective, what I saw was we were more concerned about pushing products than education. And one thing that I noticed about my Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters is they were very hungry and very adamant about wanting to learn, right? And not just have products because anybody can just open up a checking account or a savings account and you don't know what to do with it, right? But it's a tick mark for the banker. But I really wanted to see more education and more, hey, look, this is the system, this is the way it works, and this is how you can be a part of it, and just going out there, setting up a table, and wanting to open an account just for tick marks. Um, so I saw that kind of switch, and I hope that it's still, you know, really centered around education and financial literacy and just product pushing, because like you said, you know, our Latino and Hispanic, you know, are, are not just people who, you know, only dealing cash are entrepreneurs, right? They're people who, you know, are in corporate America, they're doing so many things, and we can't just look at any, you know, group of people as people, oh, okay, they're just, they're fine with cash or they're fine with the bank the way they are. We need to make sure we're doing everything and we're being proactive about integrating them into the system that they deserve to be in. No, that, that is correct. And you want to be able to ensure that they have, they have a voice at the table in regards to being able to be relevant at the table also and that they're represented to, not as consumers but as, as people that are being able to produce it. And, and I think that the big thing is that, that, you know, when you look at the um, African-American and the Latino population, those, those are two populations that would be able to come together and have an equal voice at the table from the dollar standpoint and the consumer standpoint. And also, you know, that's something that's going to be very powerful and that's not talked about a lot. And, um, you know, I, I will say, you know, something that I learned early on um, when I was in Oakland, California, I had the, the privilege to study under um, Dr. Asa Hilliard and Dr. Wade Nobles. And one thing they talked about under black psychology and in the aspect of community development was that, you know, you have to be able to go from a systematic standpoint to teach those from where they came from to where they're going. So, so you know, that legacy is still alive today and it has to go forward. So that's the re-education and the re-understanding and the rebirth of letting people know of the value they have and the value proposition they hold, regardless of where they come from. I agree. And I personally don't think it needs to be a cookie cutter approach. Like uh, I, I think when we're talking about financial literacy and in our school systems, then we need to meet people where they are, right? We don't need to just sit them in a room and just kind of talk about money and the way it works in our economy and credit and all of those things as something that is the same for everybody because you and I both know it's not, and everybody isn't affected or uses it the same way. But we really need to kind of model it to where, you know, if we have people that are coming in um, from, you know, low-income um, homes or, you know, based in, in a, kind of like an area where they're living paycheck to paycheck, we can't, in my opinion, we need to be more sensitive and more aggressive with teaching them, hey, look, 
no matter what you're seeing on a daily basis, this over here is actually how you can use it to leverage it to change your life besides just throwing different terms at them and they're going home and mommy and daddy don't even know what they're talking about. Um, I think that should, that should not be a cookie-cutter approach, but we need to be sensitive of who we're talking to and model it to really make the biggest impact. No, I do agree with you on that. That is true. But, you know, it, again, it's just a matter of of us having the voices there and also to be how do we get people representative. You know, and, again, I think that starts with, with helping our youth and helping the, the young people have a creative and, 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 and aspect to be able to learn now the, the financial dignity, the, the aspect of, of financial literacy, the aspect of, of development of education, and to put them in a way, in a, time, in a framework that they have an understanding that they have the value proposition they need to go forward and, this, and, and that they matter in value. So if they have an understanding of that as youth, as they grow into adulthood, they also have a better understanding of the value of the dollar in the sense that they make. That's right. That's right. And like you said before, it all comes full circle. It, but they really have to have that strong um, foundation and those that, that fundamental um, education, I think, personally, that really challenges them to really continue that education process. Like, you can't just stop in school. It has to be something that we continue outside of the school system, whether it's parents, whether it's some type of community advocacy, advocacy group, um, whether it's the banking system that goes out and teaches people and brings it to them. Like, it has to be um, a holistic type of learning scenario so they're not just getting in one place and they're forgetting about it in all areas of their life. So I definitely agree with you. I could sit on here and talk to you all day. I really appreciate the knowledge <laughs> and experience you bring to these topics. And these are conversations that, you know, the listeners and even myself that we need to hear. It's not just about your four walls in your home, right? It's a whole community. It's a whole system. It's a whole, you know, just war out here that we're dealing with to make sure at the end of the day people are educated correctly and have a fair shot. Right, and I'm not talking about a color of your skin or where you come from. Everybody is educated. Everybody once they leave that school system, um, and not just in the school system, outside of the school system, but they have that fair shake and they can really compete. That's my, that's what I would hope to see. You know, in the future, that we have a, a system that is is making sure our kids are coming out here and they have a a chance to compete in the global market. That's what I want. Whether they want to be in a nine-to-five corporate America or entrepreneur or not, they're getting, you know, tools to do both. I don't want to see a, a system that's just spitting out robots, right? Everybody's a nine-to-five. I want creativity, arts, you know, drawing. I want people who, because, you know, you know, people who HVAC and mechanics and you know, all of those things I think our kids need to be exposed to. Yes, I do agree. And, and, and you know, for us, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to come on on here and share with your audience and share with the brothers and sisters in you know out there listening. Um, it is a pleasure. I look forward to coming back and visiting again at another time. Um, you know, for me, it's just an honor to to just help and and help people develop their gifts, their purpose, and their opportunities. And uh, again, brother Royal, I'd like to again thank you from the bottom of my heart and me and my wife, Avenida Negron, definitely appreciate you letting us be here on, on time with you to share this, this special gift of time with you. And, you know, I look forward to changing the world with you and with your listeners. You know, there's nothing that can not stop us. So let's, let's change the world and leave our legacy. Again, thank you for the opportunity. No, thank you. I appreciate you. And I definitely want you to come back on the show. Um, you know, again, you bring so much knowledge and wisdom. 
And these are things that I feel like, you know, these seeds that you're planting us are making us look at things differently or making us think outside the box instead of our regular just way of, you know, assessing information. How does it affect everybody in our community? And that's just my life. And that's always good. Um, so I appreciate you, and I definitely want to have you back on. Please. All right, thank you. Have a great day. Peace and blessings. You too. All right, man, that was a lot of information, valuable information, great information. Um, you know, I learned so much on these on these shows, and I hope you're learning too. And I hope one of the main things that you're taking away is legacy, is dignity, it's really that community involvement aspect of it's not just about your home, it's not just about your child, but there's other people around that are learning, that are growing, that are in the influence, that are influencing, right? That whole legacy part, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, that what you do matters at the end of the day. And you really have to be concerned about once you leave this place, what will you be leaving behind? Um, you know, what will people say about you? What will you be leaving um, behind in terms of um, finances, life insurance, you know, are you making sure that your kids or whoever's coming behind you on a, uh, will be in a better position than you are? I know for me, that's something I constantly think about, that when I leave here, I want to make sure my children are in a better place than I was, right? And I always tell people there's no guide to being a parent. There's no book to being a parent other than a person might say the Bible. But I believe it's our job and it's our duty to make sure that when our time is expired on this earth, that our kids are left with something they can grab and grow, right? I'm making you so that their kids will be better off. I think that's our duty, you know. So, man, I feel energized. I feel motivated and empowered to really just get out there and educate any way I can. And you can do it, too. You don't need a degree. You don't need, you know, any type of fancy paper to get out there. And if you're passionate about, you know, banking, if you're passionate about teaching people how to use credit, if you're passionate about leadership and development, go to those schools and say, hey, look, can I do a class to the parents? Can I do a class to the teachers and really just educate them on what my expertise are? You can do that. That's called giving back. That's called caring about your community. And you don't need an organization to back you. You don't need, you don't need anything to do that. You just need that drive and that will to want to make a difference. right? And that's what I love about Mr. McGraw. Like, he has shown time and time again each one of his career paths, that he's in it for the community. He's in it to make a difference. And um, that's what I aspire to be. I aspire to be someone who comes in and who just wants to be a, a person of servitude. That whatever I do, I want to be able to impact other people for the better, make a positive impact. And so I challenge you, we always challenge on this show, I challenge you to, whatever you're passionate about, go out and teach somebody. Each one, teach one. Right? Go out and teach somebody something. Go out and take a kid by the hand and mentor them. Because you're not only helping them, but you will also help yourself as well. You'll learn just as much from that experience as they will. And, again, you don't have to have multiple degrees and a shirt and tie and, you know, a scholar to do that. If each of us takes a a child or a youth and our main goal is for them to be better than us, that in itself will impact generations to come. And I believe that's our responsibility. So, man, that's it. That's the show for today. You know, um, uh, Ms. McGuire just came through and just gave us a lot of good information. And I really want you to check out um, what he's doing in the area. I mean, he's local in Atlanta, 
but I know he also works in California as well, and I believe Alabama too. So we're going to definitely have him back on the show, and we're going to get more information about where he's at and and how you can, um, if you're in the school system, how you can tap his organization to potentially come in and, and do some of those things which he's talked about. So we're going to wrap up the show now. I appreciate it. You know, I think we covered everything that we needed to cover today, and I think we, we're going to come back next week strong. We're going to have more guests on here telling you about what they're doing in the community and how they're impacting people's lives and how they're making a difference. So if you're ever interested in coming here and telling people about what you do um, and, and how you're making a difference, please contact me at ira.royal at italkcredit.com. That's I-R-A dot R-O-Y-A-L at italkcredit.com. Um, you can go on the Facebook, facebook.com slash italkcredit to be a guest. This show is about people. This show is about you. It's about making sure that you know we have access to the information that can really help shape and mold our lives. That's what Death to the Score is all about. You know, we throw that around all the time. It's really about focusing on awareness, behaviors, and commitment, and the things that we do on a daily basis to shape us, who we are. So everybody have a wonderful day, wonderful night or evening, that is. And I really appreciate you supporting this show. You know, we'll be doing big and bigger and bigger things. So just, you know, be patient with us. And just stay tuned because we got a lot of good things coming up. So I want everybody to have a wonderful night. And check us back out next Thursday, 7 p.m. on the Cat Builder Network. Thank you. <laughs>